Hillel Wayne has spoken widely on topics of software correctness and the practices that professionals have adopted to improve how software is built on time and without bugs. But how will you know your software does what you set out to do? That's the topic of our conversation today, as Hillel shares with us some tools that exist for clarifying whether your algorithm will work before you start implementing it. Enjoy! Max of the Accidental Engineer. Today, we are joined by Hillel Wayne of Chicago, Illinois. Welcome, Hillel. Hello. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to have you. Uh, today, we're going to be talking a bit about Hillel's, one of Hillel's favorite subjects, uh, software verification methods. Uh, so assuming a layperson's knowledge of software, uh, just a very general gist, do you mind introducing people to what software verification methods are, Hillel? Sure. So a lot of people in software use tests where you say, here is my program, here is my input, here's the output I want, and running that. That's the idea behind tests, automation, test-driven development, et cetera. That's a subfield of a broader field called software verification or software correctness, which is just in general all the techniques we use to make sure our software doesn't have bugs in it. I, in particular, oh, sorry. No, no, it's fine. I was going to ask, this has a pretty really rich history of uh, software that backs important aspects of our society like aeronautics, like NASA, um, health devices. Um, so I, I can imagine, or I want to illustrate for our audience just how important software verification methods are. Um, what, what's a, can you share a little bit about the history of uh, the particular methods that you've that you've used and uh, that you find most interesting. So the history of software verification is actually pretty long. Arguably, a lot of the work was done before we even had like modern test suites. The probably the best place to start in terms of just like not going too far back is a language called Z, which I believe was done in the 1970s or 80s, where it was a way of specifying a program as an abstract blueprint. And this was used to develop um, rail systems. I believe um, the biggest success was a was a France public transit network. I probably got the country wrong. Then there's the sure. other half. Yeah, <laughs> there was also a lot of work done with um, Pascal, what's called stepwise refinement of taking ideas and turning them into code. And that sort of led to the idea of like Liskov did a lot of work in that. The same person we uh, talking Liskov substitution principle, and that created its own sort of tangent, especially sort of culminating in Ada and the Spark use of um formal verification. There is some crossover, I guess, from what I understand, from traditional fields of physical engineering, like mechanical engineering, civil engineering, et cetera, that crossed over to software when software and modern day computing was invented. Uh, I, I one uh, There's various keywords that I've come across that have physical corollaries, like a test rig or even a mock uh, that have um, their predecessors in physical tests where maybe you would uh, mock a component to a physical device as a form of a load test or something for a mechanical engineer. But uh, I, I it agreed with you. There's a very rich history to it. 
Um, do you mind for our audience? I haven't really introduced a, a background for you or guests about how you got into software engineering. How did you get into software engineering? So I was actually um, trained in undergraduate as a physics as a physicist and mathematician. Got a physics BA and a mathematics degree from University of Chicago, and was originally planning on going to physics grad school as an experimentalist. And that sort of gave me a pretty big grounding in scientific method and scientific investigation, et cetera. And then sort of in my last time in college, I realized that I much preferred the act of doing physics as the setting up setting up the systems and like the programs and running the experiments versus the actual ideas in physics itself. And the more I sort of investigated that, the more I realized that what I enjoyed most was the programming aspects and the handyman aspects. And I figured that programming, there's a lot of really interesting stuff there and it pays better than grad school. So <laughs> I decided enough. to go into that. Yeah. I mean, what, do you mind sharing about who, who, where you worked after college and what types of businesses they were? Yeah. So I, after I graduated college, I moved to San Francisco for about a year and a half and worked for Edmodo, which is an education company. They do social media for schools. After that, I realized that I didn't actually like San Francisco that much and moved back to Chicago. And then I spent another two and a half years working for a small startup called eSpark, which does different education software for schools. And now I'm currently on sabbatical for tech for a bit. So educational software uh, seems to have been a theme. What are some of the computing problems that were common to the two employers that you had in that industry? So full disclosure, at least with the first job, I was mostly starting as a junior engineer. So I was mostly doing product work and front end work. Not to say that that only um, junior engineers do front end or that front end is only for junior engineers, but that was sort of where they slotted all their juniors to start out. And with the and with the um, other job with um, eSpark, it turns out that a lot of the problems we had ended up being accidental complexity, where we had a product that was fundamentally an iPad app that was really effective for teaching students, and all the support systems and development was what I ended up focusing on and building a lot of my own experience, my own work. For example, so, how do you, how do you get like, how, for example, how do you get a app onto 500 students in a school that's running a really poorly run MDM that's running on like a Mac mini in, in a broom closet without crashing any of the iPads or the Mac mini or the app itself? Sure. <laughs> yeah. So when you say accidental complexity, I know you've uh, spoken at conferences um, you're, you have a very well-written blog that I myself read uh, about topics of reducing complexity or handling complexity in software. Uh, do you mind uh, sharing anecdotally any of your personal experiences uh, trying to combat software complexity on the job? Yeah. So first, I want to start out saying that accidental complexity probably was the wrong word there. So I mean, most people sort of divided into like essential complexity, which is things that are fundamentally hard, and accidental, which is things that are hard because bureaucracy and tooling and the work is hard. So I think one example of one of the more interesting systems we had to deal with is a lot of the stuff we worked with ended up being concurrent, where things were going on at different times and over different timelines that didn't necessarily always happen in one single order. And depending on the order, it could trigger bugs. One of the more interesting um, bugs we had to deal with was when some third-party software where if you ended up sending too many commands over a short period of time, it would start deleting files at random from the local machines. That sounds horrific. <laughs> it was a challenge. 
So how did you, how was what was what was the solution? What how did you how do you guys tackle it? So in the beginning we tackled it with fairly with a fairly um what's the right word here? I don't want to say brutal, but that's the first word that comes to mind, but a very strong-handed solution of just guaranteeing that we're only sending one command at a time, even if we really needed to send more, and we were just spacing them out. It was a simple solution, but we thought it worked, and then it turned out it didn't work because we had made some mistakes in our own walking and our own control. And that's what sort of, in order to sort of ultimately fix that, that led me to sort of what I guess I'm most known for now, which is TLA+. And formal verification. And we ended up designing the system in abstract to make sure the bug was never triggered based on their description of it. And then we implemented so we should that. We should absolutely take a moment to plug learntla.com, uh, a website that Hillel put together that is a crash course introduction for people who are curious about uh, these abstract methods that Hillel is mentioning right now. Um, you mentioned uh, abstract, in the abstract, what what does what is TLA as a as a programming language? Is it is it intended to uh, specifically write tests? Uh, I guess I guess for our audience that doesn't know TLA, what what is the what is the twenty thousand foot overview? Gladly. So TLA plus isn't a programming language. It's what's called a specification language, and the idea is that instead of writing a program, you write a specification of a program. The idea being that this is as you said, a 20,000-foot blueprint of what you want the program to do. And you specify the whole, all the data structures, like in abstract, the algorithms that's going to use. And then you can use it to verify that it has the properties you want. So in the ways that we used it, we'd specify the abstract system, and we'd say, never do anything that they said would trigger this one bug. And then we used the model checker called TLC, which explored the entire state space of the design and could tell us whether or not any of the possible situations that could arise would trigger the bug. So on the one hand, you're describing the invariance of the system, the things that should never uh, be violated. And on the other, you're describing the state space that you want the model checker to explore to verify that none of these invariants are um, violated. Is that a fair Pretty description? That's a fair description. Um, and it also reminds me of kind of one of my favorite things about TLA+. So TLA+, stands for Temporal Logic of Actions. Not going to sort of go into the theory here. That's just what it stands for. But the model checker, TLC, no one actually knows what it stands for. And like I've checked every single paper on the subject. I've checked all of the books written about TLA+, and I've asked the developers, and nobody remembers. It's just TLC. Well, uh, fun trivia, uh, an aside about trivia is that Leslie Lamport, the author of LaTeX, is also the author of TLA+. Perhaps we could give him a ring and have him come on the show and do a three-person episode. He might be able to tell us the origins of TLC, if, if I'm getting that right, that he was the author. It was actually one of his, I believe it was one of his grad students or postdoc students who um, authored it. He actually said that he thought it was impossible to model check TLA+, when he first came up with it, and it was just supposed to be a human design. And then one of his students was like, Oh no! I built a model checker. Yeah, we can we can test it now. <laughs> so I want to impress upon our audience that TLA plus has a pretty well known use case, which is that it's been used at Amazon Web Services uh, in several of their biggest software engineering teams: S three, uh, DynamoDB, 
for those people who don't know what those are, uh, there's a, a few famous incidents from the last several years where um, Amazon's S3 service has had downtime in which portions of the internet have been unaccessible. So you guys can imagine that software verification methods are extremely valuable for uh, verifying that changes to services like S3 and DynamoDB do not take down portions, portions of the wider public internet as used by websites like New York Times, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to impress upon our audience just how important tools like TLA Plus might be at companies like Amazon. Uh, yeah. But it found a use case for Hillel. Hillel, do you mind sharing about how you came across it and how you ended up using it to solve this problem at eSpark? Sure. So I was ended up working on this bug and a few other bugs with similar systems that was proving very challenging. Normal testing methods just weren't helping because it was so complicated and involved multiple like third-party systems. We couldn't reuse like type systems or contracts because they were only for our stuff. And it just ended up being just this really huge, complicated problem that we really couldn't tackle. And around the same time, I ended up switching my ADD medication, which meant I had about three days of obsessions about everything I encountered. And mm -hmm. I ran into this one um, this this one person I know, um, Ron Presler, who's another big figure in the TLA Plus community. Check out his work. He does a lot about the theory on it. He ended up linking the case study that you mentioned, the use of formal methods at Amazon Web Services. I read that. I thought, this looks really cool. I spent three days doing nothing but studying it. And we ended up trying it at eSpark to sort of see if it could help. And it took about an afternoon to spec out the system. And it immediately told us about three major bugs that we had no idea could possibly happen based on our design. So one of the distinctions I want to make, well, first off, I'll, we'll include a link to this Amazon paper in the show notes. I, but one I'm going to distinctions... send you so many links for the show. I'm going to send you so many links for the show notes, just saying. <laughs> happily, happily, we'll include them. Uh, one of the distinctions I want to make here is that, like you were describing earlier, TLA is not TLA plus is not a programming language. It's a specification writing language. So you're mentioning writing down your specifications. What does that process look like? How do you know that you're writing a comprehensive set of specifications? So would you like some historical background to this, or would you like to focus on just that one question? Because I can do both here. Uh, let's hear the historical background first. So formal verification was originally started with this idea that what you'd be doing is stepwise refinement or correctness by construction. And what that means is that you write some sort of specification of your code that describes the system. And from that, you create a translation of the code. This turns out to be really, really hard. And what we're seeing these days is the rise of what's called flyweight methods or lightweight formal methods, which is saying, okay, we're just going to find some way of describing the specification, the design of the system overarching, and say, based on these assumptions and this design, we're going to have these things preserved over this kind of situation, and then leave it up to the programmer to translate that into live code. TLA plus can be used both ways, but it's seen the most success being used as flyweight methods because it's just so much simpler and easier to do. So in this case, if you were to use TLA plus to verify your methods before writing software, writing your software product ends up being a two-step process where, like you said, you make the flyweight version of your code in TLA plus, 
verify that it behaves like you want. And then the second step of actually implementing the software is taking the design and transcribing it to a programming language that'll actually run on servers somewhere. Is that an exactly. accurate representation? Got it. That is that, so, that is correct. In fact, the um, sorry, the code that we wrote, the specification was about 60, 70 lines, and it ended up translating into about 1,200 lines of Ruby. So that, that that is a pretty representative type of ratio between lines of code in a TLA plus spec and uh, lines of code in maybe a dynamic language you'd implemented in. I, I'd say so. I there's I don't think I have like a great statistical understanding of like looking across multiple samples, but in my personal experience, it's usually like a ten to one or twenty to one ratio. So in the Amazon paper, I, I remember them mentioning the number of lines of code for some of their specs they've written for S3, DynamoDB, et cetera. Uh, they don't mention how many lines of code ended up, the implementation ended up being because lines of code is a pretty hard metric to grasp meaning from, of course. Uh, but they ballpark, I remember them all being kind of less than a thousand lines of code of TLA+. Um, so for our audience that wants a ballpark, uh, these specifications aren't longer than maybe your high school essay. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So you wrote these specifications at eSpark. Uh, you ran them through the model checker. Uh, was this something that you did once up front uh, when you guys were trying to come up with your solution? Or was it? Uh, did you run the model checker um, over a long period of development on the project you were working on? Sort of both. We The way that we did this was we originally designed the model of the code and ran the model checker. And then we started writing the code. And of course, when we're writing the code, we're writing tests, we're writing checks. We're not relying on just the fact that this works in theory to mean it actually works in practice. And then as we start to notice like interesting problems, like there's one other system we didn't consider, or they make an adjustment to what they say can trigger the bug, we'd go back and we'd alter the model to make sure that this wasn't going to lead us into a pitfall or something. And there were a couple of times where we realized that like the system that we were building, based on a couple of other assumptions that people were adding afterwards, could lead to issues. And we were able to sort of redirect the um, architecture to avoid them. So at the level of abstraction for TLA+, I mean, there, there's this crossover from writing the specifications to writing the, the implementation in a programming language. How does this jive with what people might understand as TDD um, or extreme programming and writing failing tests first? Um, is, you were describing earlier software verification methodology. Where does the use of TLA plus fall in software verification methodology? So this is actually a really interesting question. And I'm going to try to avoid rambling on it for too long because I always <laughs> ramble on this for too long. Not a problem. But yeah, so the way I sort of put it is, I think I actually wrote a, I wrote a um, blog post about TDD and about what we've seen empirically, what we've seen based on the research of how it, how it works and how it's effective. And I think one of the points there that I'm just going to paraphrase here is that they're orthogonal. TDD is a way of writing codes. That way you end up with a huge test suite. TLA plus is a way of designing systems. So that way they probably don't have bugs in theory. And what the way that I sort of tend to work is I'll write the TLA plus spec, and then I'll write, I'll basically diagram out the system, and then I'll TDD it. 
So it would be great, I'll, and we'll include these in the show notes, links to example TLA plus specs, um, perhaps any that you've written. I mean, <clears throat> to remind our audience, Hillel made a site, learntla.com, which has examples. Um, but yeah, I think I think people will be very interested in seeing examples of what these specs look like. I think one of the things to address real quick should be how readable are these specs? Are they human readable? I know there's an intermediate language that you can optionally use to write these specs that can be converted to a lower level specification syntax. How readable are TLA specs? So I want to say that they're pretty readable, but I think I'm biased here because I've just spent so much time in that world. They, I think they're readable. And the reason I believe that is because I've shown them to other people and walked people through them. And they mostly have an understanding of the high level architecture from the TLA plus spec. I think it's not documentation. Nothing's documentation, but documentation, but it's a good documentation aid. Mm. So one of the, one of the, ascribed benefits of TDD or BDD, test-driven development or behavior-driven development, is that your tests are your spec and that through writing tests, you're documenting your code. Uh, outside of maybe yourself and one other team member, would anybody else come and look at your TLA specs or are they pretty, pretty domain-specific to the software developer? They're, they're admittedly pretty domain specific and we had a fairly small team and I was working on a small team in a small company. So there was some crossover, like I'd share it with project managers and I'd share it with a couple of the engineers and we ended up putting them all in a repo for long-term preservation. But mm -hmm. that is really something I do want to explore more, the idea of how it does actually function as documentation. So I'm going to say, I hope it does, but I can't guarantee that. Got it. Fair enough. Um, one of the topics that I know you're interested in, and I am too, is uh, some of the more controversial statements that people in the test-driven development community make about how vociferously correct they are. Um, specifically, uh, there's one gentleman named Uncle Bob, Robert Martin, who's also from Chicago, Illinois, uh, who's made some very religious statements about TDD. Do you mind sharing for our audience about what are some of the uh, particular um, re virtually religious statements that people advocate about TDD as, a, as an approach to software development and what are some of the uh, trade-offs? So the I'd say the most religious statements I hear are that if you're not doing TDD, you're not being professional. TDD is just like double booking accounting and you'd be thrown in jail if you didn't do double um, ledger accounting. I probably messed up that name twice in a row, um, that TDD is actually documentation. So with TDD, you don't need documentation or that TDD acts as like formal proof of correctness or that basically this idea that either if you're not doing TDD, you're not writing code correctly or that TDD is all you need to write code correctly, which are sort of two sides of the same coin here. Mm -hmm. So, oh, go on. No, I was just going to ask, uh, uh, what, wh where do those statements break down? Because... One could imagine that, for example, the double book accounting uh, example uh, can be persuasive for someone who might not think about it very hard because in the land of software consulting, for example, how can you prove to a client that you've done your work, for example? And as, my, as I understand it, the historical example of TDD was 
creating a paper trail, not only to be able to prove that you've done the work that your client asks you to do in exchange for payment, but also um, to point out that a client is asking for the spec to be changed and to be able to fight back against change requests. Uh, so I, I guess where, I, where, does, where, do the, where does the analogy break down with double book accounting um, and people being thrown in jail for not using TDD, <laughs> I guess. Oh, so actually, um, so actually, that's actually a good question, and it's actually one of my pet peeves. This comparison between TDD and du- like um double ledger accounting, which again mm-hmm. I cannot remember the name of the exact term, but basically there's two major problems with that analogy. The first one is I've actually talked to some accountant friends I have, and that if you're a small business, you can totally find do single ledger, and it's not a big deal. If you're a big company, you should be using double like double booking. But if you're a small company, it's not a problem. So yeah, <laughs> the entire thing of like, yeah. Um, and the other problem is that double ledger accounting is the idea that you are, as you're writing your, as you're basically doing your accounting, you're verifying it by running a parallel checks on the accounting, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't accurately match up to TDD as a thing. It's closer to a t- software correctness technique which is also very interesting. It also has a deeper history called contracts, which is mostly out of fashion these days, but I think is a very powerful technique and really a lot of people would benefit from it. So both the analogy doesn't work with TDD and the claim of the analogy that like you must use double like ledger is itself not quite like correct in reality. Got it, got it. So what for audience that doesn't know about contract style testing, uh, do you mind giving people a 20,000 foot overview? Sure. So the idea is, you know how like with code, you might have certain things that you check them. And if they fail, you raise an exception, then you handle that exception. And then you continue on with the program. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so very, very high level overview without like getting into a lot of the details or like the background. Contracts are essentially that, except that you never catch the exception. If The contract is some code that if it fails, indicates that there must be a bug in your program. So you stop the program and find it. Mm -hmm. So this is- It turns out the contracts are both, yeah. Are these these contracts intended to be shipped with production code so that if your production code encounters a bug, they're intended to fail without being caught? Depends on who you talk to. Um, there's one, there's a lot of people who think that you turn them off in production because they slow down the code a tiny bit, and for that exact reason, other people say that no, if you catch a bug, your program's going to do some undefined behavior, which may or may not be good, and you should probably stop that and get a trace that can be sent immediately to the developer so they can write a patch or fix it. And it probably really depends on your problem domain and how much reliance you need and the assurance you need. So. It really does depend again on your exact use case, I think. Yeah, I, 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 one of the variations that I think our audience may have heard of and uh, merely have a different name but refer to the same practice is assertion-based uh, programming where you, uh, perhaps at the beginning of a function invocation, make assertions about what your function's input uh, has received. Uh, is that analogous at all? That's actually the same thing, yeah. So you make the assertions, and if the assertions fail, you just crash the program. So if you that, were to, and that's how it's, uh, yeah. So if you were to write a add function that took two arguments, x and y, uh, and 
uh, you're using a non-type safe language like Python or Ruby or JavaScript, and you're given a, an integer and a string, <laughs> and you had an assertion about the inputs being integers or floats, and it would fail, I guess. And that would be an example. Having that assert statement would be an example of, uh, of contract-based programming. Yeah, and actually one of the interesting things is that a lot of the ways that assertions are used these days in dynamic languages is as a primitive type checker. And that does help because, again, dynamic languages can, can often benefit from checking your arguments, but you can also do a lot more with contracts. For example, one of the most typical examples is saying, like, you can only pass in non-negative integers for this function that withdraws money or that this operation on a stack data structure cannot be called if the stack is empty. So for our audience that are curious about, I mean, I think our audience has a gist of how to use contract-based programming or assertion-based programming to, to add a certain level of software verification <laughs> to whether their software will work or not. Uh, but for people who are curious about TLA+, Plus, like we've been talking about earlier, uh, and, are, and may go to learntla.com, could you perhaps give people a sense of whether upfront TLA+, Plus will be value to, valuable to them or not? Um, I think the number of people who work on S3 and DynamoDB, for example, on planet Earth is, is not a very large number. <laughs> but there are plenty of other people who work at companies like eSpark, where you worked, or Madefire, where I work, that may benefit from TLA+. What, what would lead somebody to benefit from using TLA+. That's a good question. I think it's a little broader. So I'm going to actually broaden the question a little bit more and say where people will benefit from flyweight methods in general. <clears throat> Sorry, because TLA plus isn't the only one. In fact, when people are just starting out, I sometimes recommend they try out a different one called Alloy to start out because it has a lot of power but is also a lot simpler to learn. Mm -hmm. But in general, at least with TLA plus, it tends to really shine if your system is one that either changes over time in complicated ways or involves any amount of concurrency where you have some amount of non-determinism in the program. Those are both the cases where it's often the best tool, even informal methods, for doing what you need to do. So distributed systems is a great use case. I know Leslie Lamport, we should also mention, besides being author of TLA Plus and LaTeX, is also the inventor of the Paxos consensus algorithm. So he's very much interested in distributed systems. And part of the reason why uh, I would guess that these folks at Amazon adopted TLA plus over Alloy is Leslie Lamport's positive reputation in the distributed systems community. Um, so I guess is distributed systems one good use case? Uh, you're describing concurrency um, and uh, one phrase we haven't used yet, fault tolerance. Is that where people are in a fault, fault intolerant type of environment, they should be checking out TLA plus? Yeah, I don't think that's the only place TLA Plus is really valuable, but it's definitely one of the most well-known and one of the most useful places. Mm. I know in, yeah. in the Amazon paper and the ACM that they mentioned some of the alternatives to TLA Plus that they considered for specking out their distributed system problems with S3 and DynamoDB. And they mentioned some of the pros and cons and how they ultimately came to choosing TLA Plus over Alloy, for example. One of the things they referred to that I didn't really grasp was 
the expressiveness of the language and how TLA plus was able to express certain aspects of their specification that alloy was not. Um, I don't know. Are, are there other specification flyweight uh, languages besides TLA plus and alloy that might exist out there that you're familiar with? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. In fact, <clears throat> so the case study that TLA, that um, Amazon put about TLA plus is sort of the one that's most public and most well-known, but they also did another one, which I think is behind a paywall, but you can find preprints where they compare it to all the other methods they were looking at to sort of decide why they decided on it. And for example, one of the reasons they said Alloy was not the one they chose was because while it was really good for the problems that it is really good for, which I guess it sounds technological, the very specific problems they were working on didn't quite fit its model. So in general, like for example, Alloy is really good if you have to deal with like a lot of relationships between data and relational constraints where the time evolution of the system isn't that complicated. And they say like past, like they say, it's pretty okay if you only have like six or seven steps of like time, which is honestly pretty good for like a lot of cases. But some of the problems they, they found with TLA plus ended up requiring like 35 steps. Mm -hmm. um, other, other flyweights, the other one sort of in that method is um, called Promala or SPIN, which was probably one of the first ones to come out, but it's fairly limited in what it can do. Um, another one that's been that sort of came out more recently was called Runway, which was created by Salesforce and the guy who created the Raft consensus protocol. But I think that has that people mostly stopped development on that one. And then there's a few others, like there's some stuff that people have been doing with UML actually hmm. as flyweight specification. So for our but audience, that tends to not be as yeah. For our audience that doesn't know UML, I think we should take a moment to clarify what UML is because we often will use acronyms on the show <laughs> and, and never spell out what yeah, an acronym oh. is. Oh, oh yeah, definitely. Like that's that's definitely one of the things that I tend to struggle with is just like going into this massive jargon hole. But UML, so you know those like class diagrams that people draw for objects and like those has one relationships with all the boxes and lines. Mm -hmm. That's that's basically UML. Um, it's a, it's a lot more complicated than it has this, its own like weird and wild history of like why it happened, why it got really popular, why everybody turned against it. But the very big overview is that you're drawing lines and boxes and checking properties based on that. Got it, got it. So for people who might be feeling in the stone age and using pen and paper to design the software they're setting out to write, it, it's not- No, a, no, it, that is great. That, like <laughs> pen and paper, like honestly, most people don't even do that. Like, and there's been like a lot of work in this, like a lot of studies and like a lot of um, studies where like, even if you sit down and write out what you're planning on doing in pen and paper, you're going to end up in a much better place than if you don't even do that. So like, if you're doing pen and paper, that's awesome. You are ahead of 99% of developers in the world and you should own that. It's amazing what you're doing. You know, that's something that uh, in all of the variations of XDD or whatever driven development uh, I've come across, there's one, there's readme driven development which was advocated by the one of the co-founders of GitHub and why they feature readmes so prominently on GitHub repo pages is that if you if you don't have a clear readme you're you're kind of effed <laughs> like why would anyone yeah. help contribute to you if you aren't putting in a bare minimum amount of time to try and communicate to other human beings the value of what it is you're setting out to write software wise um, but one of the, that plus like yeah, yeah. go for it Sorry, that plus, that plus if you can't describe what you're doing, do you really, can you really say you understand it? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree. Yeah. 
<laughs> one of the things that I've been getting more into of late as a as a function, <laughs> as a result of working at a comic book company is trying to do more visualized representations of software I'm working on. So I got a hold of an iPad and started doing digital drawing. And one of the things I'm most impressed by is websites that uh, discuss programming content like Reddit or Hacker News tend to have a heavy favorite, well, Hacker News less so, but Reddit more so. People generally favor visual content. Like people are way more engaged with visual content. And when it comes to educational devices or communication devices, visual representations of what it is that you're interested in are more, I mean, inherently engaging or viral or entertaining. So I think we should encourage all of our audience to, well, one, grab pen and paper and try and spec out what it is you're writing or trying to develop on paper first before even maybe picking up TLA+. Um, um, have you, actually, have you have you ever played with um, Graphviz or Mermaid? I have not. I've heard of both. I mean, Graphviz comes embedded in a number of tools. Uh, but for audience that doesn't know, what what are Graphviz and Mermaid? So Graphviz is a tool that AT and T developed to just generally draw, essentially diagrams that are what are called directed graphs, where you have certain things connecting to other things, and they're different shapes and colors. And I've used it a lot for documentation and diagramming, and it's really, really nice for that. Again, we're going to include a link. While Mermaid it was is basically designed for doing like flowcharts and simple relations, but it's also a lot simpler, and it can be embedded in Markdown really easily. So they both have their use cases, and they're both pretty good tools to like mess around with. And again, one cool links to both of those. Yep, and they're I'm as I recall, they're both kind of command line tools that you point them at your your text representation of your your graph or chart and it generates a jpeg or ping image um, i like the concept of markdown based uh, visualizations <laughs> where you, where you just write down your visualization your design flow in a markdown file and you you get a rich image i know that in the older man pages and older style software documentation, you'll often see uh, control flow diagrams <laughs> that people have typed out <laughs> in a text editor to try and visualize what's going on. And it seems silly that they're not rich images with color and arrows and that kind of thing. So I definitely will include these in the show notes. So out of curiosity, I know I know you have some upcoming speaking gigs I want to help plug. Uh, you're going to be at PyCon this year in Cleveland. Um, speaking about what topic? Um, so the topic of my talk at PyCon is called Beyond Unit Tests. And it's about, as we've been talking about, other um, correctness techniques that can be used to sort of check your code with a special focus on them being the ones that are really easy to get using and start using. So the two I'm going to talk about, like in particular, is as we mentioned, contracts and this thing called generative or property-based testing, where you essentially have the computer find test cases for you. Mm. And it's they're both very simple techniques that are very easy to start using, and they're both incredibly powerful testing techniques. So I've never heard of generative or pro uh, property-based testing. Do you mind giving a... <laughs> Sorry for making this the third time I say it, but 20,000-foot overview of pro property-based testing? I mean, no worries. Like if I didn't, if I didn't enjoy talking about them, I wouldn't have name dropped them. So, <laughs> so the idea behind property-based testing is 
it's it's sort of like the best way to sort of describe it is it's a hybrid of formal of formal methods and verification and on the nitty gritty on the ground like unit testing. And what you do is you say, okay, here here's like your function or your system. Here are the inputs that I want to have. Here are the here is some property that like should happen when I do this. So a very simple example is if you have a function that reverses a list, if you run that function twice in a list, then you get the same list back, right? Mm -hmm. So then what happens is you specify in your test saying, okay, I'm going to be passing in any list of any integer. And what I'll do is I'll check, okay, does it work for the empty list? Does it work for a list with a million elements? Does it work for like a list that has not a number in it? Does it work for a list that has 50 of the same like element and like one other one? And it just look, goes through all of like those pathological cases and sees if any fail. So it ends up being a lot broader than say a unit test, but also a little bit less like, what's the word, um, specific. So you use a mix of both of them. So I, I could this, has this been described ever as an extension of unit testing where instead of looking at uh, well, I mean, unit testing refers to a unit under test, a unit of code under test. Uh, but uh, I mean, I, for example, in my career so far, seen plenty of cases where unit tests have been for loops over a range of inputs and making assertions about the the range of those uh, the range of those possible inputs. Um, I've also seen various packages that don't call themselves property-based testing, uh, but are called, uh, for one example, DDT is a Python library that uh, you decorate your test function with uh, a list of inputs and uh, the test gets reran uh, and uh, unique test names are generated <laughs> based on the inputs of those uh, that, you, that you've decorated that test with. Um, but it sounds it sounds like this is this is for maybe very wide ranges and ones that you might have to sample over because they're so broad. Um, it, it sounds like you do an exhaustive search of a range, basically. Is that am I getting that right? It's sort of a mix of an exhaustive search plus pathological cases. So, um, for example, if you say it can be integers, it'll almost certainly try negative numbers zero and like a really high positive number at the very least. What was the name of the library, by the way? I'm not familiar with it. What was it called? DDT. I think it stands for okay. data-driven tests. Um, I think I don't think it's tremendously okay. popular, but um, where people are maybe writing unit tests that uh, have some very simple condition that they're checking about a function they have, uh, instead of writing a for loop inside of your unit test that might fail on the third iteration of your for loop. By using DDT and decorating your test function, um, DDT will, by decorating the test function, generate n tests where n is the number of uh, inputs that you're testing over. And so it'll test all n of those instead of just failing at the first iteration in your for loop that fails, if that makes sense. I'll check it. Yeah, I'll check it out. Thank sure. You. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't, I don't remember, recall it self titling itself as property-based testing. But I know uh, because you've written about it uh, and others have about the Python library called Hypothesis, which is explicitly property-based testing. Do you mind sharing for our audience a little bit about uh, how one uses Hypothesis and why one might want to use it? 
So Hypothesis um, is is pretty much just a property-based testing library. It's a very good one. It's considered one of the best like libraries for that, like of almost all programming languages. And the developer, um, Dan McIver, is actually this is really exciting. He's generalized the backend, so he's currently porting it to Ruby and redesigning in a way that you can port it to any language you want really easily. But it essentially works like that. You say, okay, here's my input, and my test is going to preserve this invariant, and then you it'll just like run through all the tests and it will do that exact same sampling looking for pathological cases i think the best example of that which again we're going to link is yeah. where somebody was using it when teaching kids about like was for teaching kids python they were it, he was using it to check their assignments of making a password a password strength checker and he'd say like for example just generate um possible situations where the bug is that it has less than eight characters, but can be any other kind of string, as long as less than eight, will it be caught? And it was catching these bugs that he never even thought of, where like they had let through situations that in his unit tests were accidentally tripping a different check and not checking the one that they actually wanted to. Mm. I, I think people- that, that wasn't a really great explanation. I'm just gonna like the article. No, I, I think it was a good explanation and I think it was a good example yeah. Uh, I th we'll we'll link the article, of course, and I think people would benefit from you know Pip installing it. So and, many links. Okay. There's going to be so many links. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to have an entire you're going to have an entire semester of just links. I here. mean, shit, that's better than some college courses give you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I want to plug again learntla.com. Uh, I also want to give you a chance, Hillel, uh, to mention that you are currently working on a book for A Press about TLA. Uh, do you mind sharing for our audience about what it is that you're, you've been commissioned to write? Um, yes, gladly. Um, so I'm writing a book called Practical TLA+. And the idea behind the book is that it's drawing from my experiences with like Learn TLA. And the thing I've noticed with a lot of the people who've been learning TLA+, is that they can get the basic ideas down, but they have no idea how to use it to write a specification. And part of the problem there is that there's just not that many examples out there of how to write specifications, in part because most of the work done is either on abstract algorithms or like classified work for like companies and like governments. Mm -hmm. So what this book is going to be is it's going to be an introduction to TLA plus and like cover the language and then follow it with like a lot of examples and several very big case studies that are like heavily developed, like 20 page plus examples that show you to go from like ground zero of an idea to a full like 300 line specification. Mm. Um, one of the actually funny things was I thought that this would be a lot easier because I wrote, I figured, oh yeah, I already wrote Learn TLA. I can, I can use that as a launching point, but I've discovered that like now that I've had a year more of like both using the language myself and teaching and technical writing, I'm like, wow, I'm kind of embarrassed about a lot of stuff in Learn TLA. Like, don't get me wrong. It's a really good resource, but I'm pretty sure I can do a lot better this time around. Well, I think our audience would look forward to it. Uh, I think they should all give learntla.com first a shot. Uh, and I'm sure there's somewhere that they can sign up on a mailing list to hear from Hillel when the book is actually published. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, just, I mean, if, you, if you're interested, and we'll include this, just send me an email. I like getting email. I like talking with people. So yeah, just send me an email saying you're interested, and I'll add you to a list. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, hello. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the Accidental Engineer Podcast. 
If you enjoyed our interview with Hillel and want to hear more about professional software engineering careers, visit our website at theaccidentalengineer.com. We have a large backlog of interviews and sign up on our email list to be notified when we publish new ones.